Hi guys, welcome back to this week's episode of Mastering Agility, a podcast series with and for inspiring agilists, bringing you the best of the business. This podcast is brought to you by agilitymasters.com, providing you with all the agile coaches and scrum masters you need. Make sure to go to the website now and subscribe to the newsletter in order to stay up to date with the latest information when it comes to this podcast. In this week's episode, I'm talking to Jeff Gothelf, renowned speaker, writer, coach, consultant, you name it when it comes to innovation, outcome-driven development, leadership, all of these really big topics that help you drive your agile transformation forward. This time, we're zooming in on how to embrace an innovative mindset, an innovation mindset, and how we can bring that innovation to your organization. Let's welcome Jeff. Jeff Gothav, thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Sander. It's good to see you again. Likewise, likewise. Hey, before heading into the topic of uh, embracing continuous innovation, you're an author, you're a widely popular speaker, uh, consultant, you have a lot of clips on YouTube. Something that you've also been is a circus artist. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that. Well, to be fair, <laughs> so I was a circus worker. I was a circus support uh, a worker. But yeah, so I, I did. Um, it's funny. Um, I graduated from university with a degree in media production, which I graduated from university in 1995, which is the year that Netscape came out, right? <laughs> so any media production work that I learned in the years 1991 to 1995 were instantly obsolete as soon as I graduated. Nevertheless, that's what I got my degree in. And uh, and I got an offer, uh, you know, and, and so I was graduating. It was my senior year. It was, it was exam week, the last week. And I didn't have any real plans for what I was going to do after graduation. I didn't have a job lined up. Um, I was playing in a band and the guys, you know, they said, let's, let's keep playing. I didn't know. And so it seemed like final week of school, I get a call from the school and the school says, listen, the circus is coming through town. I was going to college at James Madison University in Virginia in the U.S. on the East Coast. And the circus is coming through town. And they need a uh, they they need a uh, uh, a sound man, a sound engineer, and we recommended you <laughs> for the job. <laughs> and I, I wasn't sure if this was a compliment or you know or something else. But look, it was good for their job placement numbers, right? Hey, we got a student placed with a real job that paid money. And so I, I took a call with the band leader who was on the road with the circus and he explained the situation to me and how much it paid and what I'd have to do. And uh, I called my parents and I said, what do you think? And they're like, you should do it. I was like, really? Like, <laughs> I, thought they, I thought they would just be like, oh, psh, shut up. Like, you're not joining the circus. But apparently they said they were cool with it. And so I joined. I joined the circus. I, I graduated on Saturday. I put all of my belongings in storage on Sunday and all of my belongings in 1995 included my motorcycle, a mattress and my Bob Marley poster. Like that was, that's what I The owned. essentials. <laughs> right. The essentials. And, uh, and I, Monday I was in the circus and I spent six months touring and working with the Clyde Beatty Cole Brothers Circus, which at the time was the largest three ring tented circus in America. So 
Ringling Brothers is the most famous. They do arenas. They play like Madison Square Garden, that type of thing. We played in an actual circus tent that we set up every time. The elephants would help set it up. It was a, a whole big event. And I did six months on the road with the circus as the sound and lighting technician. Um, it was crazy. It was completely foreign. It was just a foreign land where you had to really learn how to integrate and be successful and build relationships and collaborations, um, navigate the politics, a 200 person subculture, roughly, right? Um, and they travel, what's fascinating about it, I mean, there's a thousand things that are fascinating about it, but one of the most interesting things was that they travel sort of on the on the borders of regular society, right? So it's a 200 person community, its own culture that doesn't really integrate with the world that you and I live in. But every now and again, they kind of dip in. They dip in. They're like, they'll, they'll go to the movies. They'll go to the mall. They have to actually go see a real doctor, not the circus doctor, something like that. But generally speaking, they sort of travel sort of on the fringes of regular society. And you'd never, you'd like, you'd never meet them. You'd never see them. You, you wouldn't know anything about them because they don't really leave the circus that much. Um, it was fascinating in hindsight. I was miserable for a long time during those six months wow. um, for a variety of reasons. But in hindsight, I'm really glad I did it. I learned a ton about, honestly, survival, um, improvisation, um, just self-confidence more than anything else. Uh, uh, I, I learned how to, how to fix audio equipment while the show was happening. I mean, it was just, it was crazy, crazy, like crazy times. And uh, I don't miss it. Um, but you know, I'm glad I did it. I saw you met some interesting people like Steven Tyler as well. I did. I met Steven Tyler. I mean, celebrities go, people love the circus. People really love the circus. Right. Um, and Steven Tyler like literally comes every year to this circus because th th it, there's always a stop in his hometown in Massachusetts, which is Duxbury, Massachusetts. And so we stopped in Duxbury and, and they, everybody was like, Steven Tyler's going to come. Steven Tyler's going to come. And he came. And and we all said hi, and he, he was he was super super nice about it. Um, uh, who else? Steven Seagal came one when we were in Connecticut. Right. That was that was weird. <laughs> He's an odd dude. Um, uh, uh, he must be. He yeah, must be. And uh, but but yeah, but celebrities come to this thing, and and it's um, you know it was weird, man. <laughs> That's all I can say. Has this been? part of the the reason that you're now so successful the lessons that you learned there look i definitely believe that that helped me tremendously look i mean i it, the the things that i learned so so i learned um number one i learned self-confidence right self-confidence is this the, the, this idea that you could put me in a situation and i'll figure it out right like there, there's no there was no prep to do for joining the service i had no time like literally, they made me the offer, I think, on a Wednesday. I said yes on Thursday, and Monday I was in. And and remember, like Netscape came out that year. So it wasn't like, what is circus life like? Like there was no Google to to, you know, to search and, and get some photos of this place. And so there's no prep. I just got, I got thrown in, and, you know, you start to figure it out, and you make mistakes. And I think it made me comfortable with making mistakes and, and learning quickly and iterating because – you have to, right? This is like, so it's an intense, 
it's an intense um, workplace because you're doing two shows a day every day, three shows on Saturday, and there's no breaks and there's no days off. Right. So you get a break. Like when the last show ends, you're off until the next show starts the next day. And if it's at the same place, you don't have to go anywhere. But if it's if it's in another place, you have to get in the truck and ride to the next place. Um, and so it's, it's super intense. And, and there's 4000 people, children mostly in the tent at every show. And so you really like you can't mess it up. And you're going to mess it up. Right. Like especially I messed it up. Bound to happen. Yeah. I mean, I mean, for example, I'll give you an example. We talked uh, briefly before you hit record about audio equipment, right? Um, audio equipment. I, I had a grossly inadequate sound system for the size of the tent, right? So I'm trying to push enough volume through the sound system to fill the tent in the summer in the United States, which is like 150% humidity. You know, it's anywhere between... 30 to 45 degrees Celsius, right? So like 80 to 115 Fahrenheit, <laughs> right? And, uh, and, and, you know, and the system's feeding back, it's collapsing, it's breaking. Um, the only, the only positive side of this thing is that everybody knows you're going to screw up and they wait for it. And then you get a nickname based on your big first week screw up. Right. And then you're forever known by that name. Everybody forgets your real name. And so it's not like it's not like I, I knew guys in the circus like Kevin and Bob and Jennifer, you know, and Lucy. It was like there was uh, Toro and Hurl and uh, and Slick, <laughs> you know, like all these all these weird names and stuff. But like but literally I, like I, so you learn you learn to take risks. You learn to make mistakes. You learn to learn from those mistakes. You learn to iterate and to improvise on the fly. Um, I learned like what, like good enough, right? So there's like the optimal solution and there's the thing that's going to get you from here to the next step, which is what I needed at the time. Um, there were certain situations in there where I, need, I needed to build alliances with people I had nothing in common with. Right, which is a tremendously valuable skill in the real world. Um, for example, right, there were uh, some folks. There, there were some folks. Uh, the, the circus employed a lot of ex-convicts. Um, they literally would 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 wait outside prisons in Florida on release. There were days where pr prisoners were released, and they would offer these folks a job. They'd say, would you, "Do you want a paid paid gig?" Uh, you get a place to live, you get three meals a day, and you get a little bit of money. Now, their living conditions were terrible. They were treated poorly, and they did all the backbreaking labor. But there were a lot of ex-convicts in the circus, and occasionally um, equipment would disappear, right? Stuff would just get stolen. Like, they would just, you know, and I couldn't, I couldn't, like, the show couldn't go on if I didn't have the mixer or the amplifier or the microphones. And so... I had to figure out how to get to know these folks. Now, these are folks who were, who were different from me, people I really had never had any kind of contact with in the real world before. But I had to I had to build alliances with these folks, frankly, so I could get my stuff back. <laughs> right? <laughs> Every time it got stolen, I would go reach out to the guys that I, I got to know and that I befriended. Um, I, I collaborated with. Right? And I was like, look, hey, I lost another microphone overnight. Like. I need it back, please. And I would get it back, right? And so it, it's stuff like that that really, you know, and you come, and, and I told you before I was miserable 
and I was miserable for, for a variety of reasons, but you know, you kind of learn to make the best of it and you look for the things that make you happy and you start to kind of figure out how to, how to, to kind of extract positive things from these experiences. So I learned a ton in, in hindsight, honestly, there was a guy who spent a year with that circus prior to, to when I was there as a clown. He's an author. His name is Bruce Filer. And he wrote a book called under the big top about his experience in that circus at, you know, during a year as a clown, I would have done the same thing had he not literally done it the year before, because I, tremendous amount of learnings that I apply, uh, I apply today, and not the least of which is my soldering skills. I can fix any broken cable uh, <laughs> in the blink of an eye. <laughs> nice, you're a talented guy. I guess so. Now, moving before moving toward the the actual innovation part. I'm pretty sure, and myself included, that the listeners are curious about what your nickname was. <laughs> yeah, so I'll tell you. So my nickname was Cylon. Cylon, the, the robots from Battlestar Galactica were known as the Cylons. And not the newer version, but the, the original series from the 80s, might have even been 70s, um, of battle, the American version of Battlestar Galactica. They had these big, metallic, shiny robots called the Cylons. And they had this red light that would yeah. move and they made the sound go, womp, 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 womp. That was like the sound. And the reason why I was called the Cylon is because I told you about the, the PA system being inadequate. Every time in my first week, plus the humidity, right? So every time the ringmaster would take his cordless microphone in front of the speakers, which were hanging on, on at the top of the tent, um, I would get the feedback and it sounded like that, womp, 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 womp. And so from then on, they were like, you're the Cylon. That was it's it. definitely a better nickname than Hurl. Hurl. And Hurl showed up with food poisoning. On his, yeah. his first week, he was sick and puking the whole week. He was known as Hurl forever. <laughs> I don't even remember his real name. Like, I mean, it was 25 years ago, right? So, but nevertheless, like, I still I don't remember his real name. His name's Hurl. I love this story, man. <laughs> How important is it for, for instance, a circus to be able to innovate their portfolio of acts? It's a good question, you know, and, it, and it's interesting because everybody likes to define themselves, right? What's your, what's your unique value proposition? Right? Let's talk about it in, in sort of the language of the day, right? Um, in, in the circus that I was in was a traditional circus, and their unique value proposition is that we are a traditional circus, 100 years of tradition, elephants, tigers, big top, clowns, the whole thing. Cirque du Soleil, for them, was not a circus, they're like, that's not a circus. That's that's a show. It's a, you know, it's acrobats and things like that. But it's not. They didn't see it as a circus. I think that. Look, I think they had to keep things interesting, right? Year after year after year, you can't show up with the same old tired acts because people are going to get bored and they're not going to show up anymore. Um, and so, you know, these folks were constantly. The, the amazing thing about these circus performers, who were all from literally all over the world, all walks of life, um, they were constantly working on their acts constantly trying to improve it, constantly trying to keep it interesting and, and relevant because at some point, at some point, the owner of this circus was going to basically sell them or, or offer them to some, some other circus. And so they are, uh, it's, it's super important, right? Because the tastes change, people get bored and, uh, and they, they have to keep, to keep it a viable business. Now, there is a big difference between innovation and just to, to tie this back together to, for instance, scrum teams. 
just to cram out new features. What to you is the biggest difference between innovation and just new work? So look, there, there's, there's incremental improvement and there's innovation, right? And I think both are valuable. And I think you need to be clear on what your mandate is. Not everybody is tasked with innovation, nor should everybody be tasked with innovation. Some people should be tasked with incremental improvement, right? So incremental improvement is just saying, look, the product exists. It exists to meet a, a need. And we are going to make sure that it, we're going to continuously improve the product so that it's always meeting that need in the best possible way. Optimizing features, removing features, uh, adjusting for, for new uh, delivery channels, things like that. Innovation is just is taking a leap, right? It's 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 hopping over it's the, the the current state of things and really rethinking or reimagining how you might solve a problem for a particular customer, right? It's it's completely rethinking how how something is done, right? So e-commerce, for example, is 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 an is an interesting innovation. We still have brick and re brick and mortar retail, and it's a, it's still by far the overwhelming majority of retail is done brick and mortar, right? We we talk about Amazon and all these things. I read this thing in the New York Times the other day about like a tiny fraction of retail is actually e-commerce. Feels like it's everything, but but it's not. But that's that's an innovation, right? I can buy something from my computer. Right. That's that's amazing. Right. And and, and so things like that. Um, there are, you know, innovative um, strategies, product strategies, for example, Amazon Prime. Right. It's kind of following that retail and e-commerce. Amazon Prime is brilliant. Just like this brilliant, like club that hooks people in. And then you never, you never let go. They, like you never let go of that particular service and that level of convenience to the point where you've got sort of businesses that are completely outside of that world copying that strategy. So we use a, a food delivery service here in Barcelona called Glovo. Glovo well, it's just food delivery, right? Like Delivery Hero or, you know, Seamless yeah. in the US or Grubhub or whatever. Um, Glovo has Glovo Prime, in case you're wondering how creative their stealing is, right? <laughs> six bucks a month, right? Six euro a month, unlimited deliveries. And so they you don't have to pay for the food or just the delivery? No, no you, have pay, you have to pay for the food, right? You have to pay for your delivery, but like there's no delivery charges, right? So infinite deliveries of anything for six euro a month, right? You better believe we pay for that and they're here at least once a day with something, right? Because it's just, it's, it, it's, it's a no brainer and, and, and it's super easy, right? So I think innovation redefines the category. Innovation redefines a customer experience. Um, continuous improvement just makes it better. Is Amazon Prime, is that an, an example of innovation itself or are they just, just continuing on what, for instance, Netflix already did? I think Prime. I think Prime is a, is a is a strategic innovation. I think it fundamentally redefined people's relationship with Amazon. And and look, I mean, it's not, you don't just get free deliveries, right? But you get you get their music service, you get their uh, video streaming service. There's all kinds of benefits to to being a, a customer of that. And it's it's uh, it's a tremendously powerful retention strategy that no one did before. It completely reinvented that. So I think that that is a strategic innovation.
it seems to me from my league point of perspective that we're going into such a, a more economical perspective of subscriptions like Prime, whether yeah. it's global or, or um, Amazon. For instance, if I look at my own home, I don't have regular cable TV anymore because we have Netflix, we have Amazon Prime, we have Disney Plus and all these kind of things. We're more subscription-based, and that's what you see with uh, Office 365 or um, the Adobe suite and these kind of things. Do you think this is the future? How do you think the future is going to look like when it comes to this? Hmm. Um, look, subscription is a good business, right? It's recurring revenue. And, and that is a, uh, that that's a holy grail, I think, for, for a lot of, of businesses and business owners. I think subscription makes sense with certain products and services, right? With, with certain industries, right? Um, you know, it makes sense with, with video streaming. Uh, it makes sense with delivery services if you use them regularly. It makes sense, you know, I always like, we never used it, which is interesting, um, but I always like the idea of sort of subscribing to a toilet paper delivery from Amazon, right? Like, you know, I'm gonna use it, you know, roughly the same pace, you know, <laughs> more or less, right? Uh, every, every month or so. So just send, send me a crate like every month. Like I, so, so I think it makes sense in certain situations. I think a lot of companies force it um, in a situation where it doesn't make sense. Like for example, um, you and I use all kinds of online um, uh, web-based web uh, you know, podcasting, recording, video making, tools like i would just rather buy the product right than pay descript 10 bucks a month or pay loom 10 bucks a month for the rest of my life like i like to me that that feels like uh i don't know you're you're, you're just trying to jump on a trend here that doesn't really make sense like i would just rather pay you a flat fee for the product and just own it for for you know for the duration of a lifetime and if you have an upgrade for it fine i'll, I'll pay for the upgrade after a while but this like you know so at some point, at some point, it's going to be like death by a thousand paper cuts, right? Like eight bucks here, six bucks there, ten bucks there, twelve bucks here. Like at some point, it's going to end up being hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars or euros a month, and it's some and it's going to be too much. And people are going to are going to push back. So it's got to make sense. It also gives you the opportunity to chip away small pieces rather than spend I don't know six hundred bucks in ones. Fair, fair enough, right? And 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 I get that. And I get that. So, so give me, give me a free trial, right? And make me, if, again, if it makes sense, if it makes sense, if it's a product that I'm going to be using on a regular basis. Um, but again, look, I mean, there are companies who've done tremendously well, right? Take, look at Adobe, right? Adobe fundamentally reinvented its business and saved itself from uh, uh, insolvency and obsolescence by switching to a subscription model, right? Now, look, they were facing a dire situation, right? They were selling $1,000, $1,200 products in a box when you've got Pixelmator, uh, you know, uh, and and, uh, and Sketch on the App Store for anywhere between nothing and $50, depending on the day, right? And those products did what Photoshop and Illustrator did in the same level of quality, 
with the same ease of use and with, with maybe even more simplicity. Um, and so in that sense, that transformation was, was amazing and, and, and an amazing transition that saved, saved that company. So, you know, maybe, maybe it makes sense in that world. I don't, I don't know. This does require organizations like Adobe to be really mindful of a, their own business proposition. Also the way that customer wants to consume their products. How can you really embrace such an innovative mindset? It's really hard to go from, okay, we're now doing this forever. We need to rethink this. Where do we start rethinking our business model? So look, this is, this is product management, it's product strategy. This is what, in theory, <laughs> this is what executives do, right? This is, this is what leaders do, product leaders, C-suite executives. They're paying attention to the market. They're seeing which way the wind is blowing. They're looking at their KPIs. They're looking at their executive dashboards. They're seeing the trends and they're realizing that they are getting killed, right? So I can only imagine that the executive suite, the executive team at Adobe was looking at, at sketch numbers, was looking at pixel meter numbers and was looking at their own sales and, and, and recurring sales numbers and recognizing that this was going to be the end for them if they didn't do something radically different. And, and, look, and it's super tough when you've been in business 20, 30, 40, 50 years to do something radically different. And, and what they had to do was the thing that Microsoft had to do as well. Same exact challenge, right? Which is kill the cash cow, right? Like basically let it go and figure out how to build a new business, a new business model beyond that, right? Selling boxed software installations was not the future even though that was 90% of the revenue at Adobe, right? And at, and at Microsoft. And so really reinventing that is, and it's, it's so difficult. It's because think, think about how many people, how much energy is being put forth or had been put forth towards boxed software distribution and sales inside those companies. And, and they were going to die. And now Microsoft has a trillion dollar, $2 trillion dollar, Mark, something ridiculous. Like I think it was two trillion dollar market yeah. cap in the last week. Um, you know, and Adobe's doing really well. Their products are good, and 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 look, there's tremendous benefits here, right? So you think about Office 365, you think about um, you know Adobe Creative Suite. Um, uh, they have they've empowered themselves to continuously improve the products. Like like how long did it take to update Photoshop when you bought a disc, a CD of it, right? Whereas today, like every time I fire up any one of these products, they're better than yesterday because the teams are constantly working on them to continuously improve them. So everybody wins in that sense. Now, you have investors that are investing in your product. You have the cash cow, like you mentioned, with Microsoft. And then you're going to say, hey, I think if we're not going to do this, if we're not going to go to something completely different, we're going to die as a company. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna be blockbusters. We're gonna be Nokia. How do you convince? How do you start these kind of conversations with, for instance, investors saying we gotta go into a completely different direction? You would think. <laughs> I know it's not always true, but you would think that your investors are receptive to this, right? And your investors are paying attention to which way the winds are blowing. So if you're saying, look, hey, you gave us a bunch of money, I'd like to give you a return on that, and realistically. The thing that we've been doing is no, it's not going to, it's not going to be the way that I give you return on that. 
So here's what we're thinking, right? Look, the only way to make a compelling argument in this case is with data, right? This, the, 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 the emotional plays don't make sense in that reality, right? This idea, you know, you, you, you mentioned Nokia, right? Like the Nokia story is famous and everybody's read it and heard it, but this idea that no one can disrupt us and no one's gonna want this other thing that this other company is making is again and again and again proven wrong, right? So you need to show up with data that says, look, this is what we used to do. This is what we're doing today. This is the competition we're facing today is radically different. I'll, look, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a story, right? This is, um, I had a client a few years ago in New York City who was in, um, in the United States, there's a, a whole business around test, standardized test preparation. So preparing to take college entrance exams, law school exams, police academy exams, nursing school, right? They all have standardized tests and there's a whole industry around preparing for these standardized entrance exams, okay? My client was the biggest and the oldest player in the field. They were the most expensive and they were the, the, the they were like the, you know, like the, the brand name for this kind of stuff. You almost synonymous with the industry itself and they were doing fine. And then all of a sudden, Khan Academy came along. Khan Academy, Sal Khan, right, offered the same content that they were offering, and then and, and more for free online for free. And Sal Khan is sponsored by Bill Gates, which means he's never going to run out of money ever. Like, and so imagine, imagine you've been in the business for 80 years, which is what my client was in. You know how to sell, you know, this product, you know, the audience, you know, the market, um, you know, the competition, and then boom, someone jumps in, into the market space funded by one of the richest men in the world and is giving away the product for free. Yeah. What's your response? What do you do? Right. That's, that's the, well, so that's where the executives step in. And that's where, the, and that's their job to realize that, and then to make the hard decisions that say, "Look, yes, we've been doing this for eighty years. We have never faced a threat like this before. Right? We have got to figure out how to redefine our products and services for a, a new twenty-first century, mobile-first, you know, TikTok scrolling, you know, uh, world where people expect stuff for free." And we have to figure out how to differentiate enough so that we can we can charge for our products, even though there are free alternatives. Acknowledging there are free alternatives, fascinating challenge, right? And they're doing okay. They're 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 putting it together, right? But they're making hard decisions. They're killing the cash cows, right? The things that got them here, the things that made them the number one player in the space: Adobe, Microsoft, my client, etc. Right. They have to let those things go. And that's that's a brutal decision, especially when you put 20, 30, 40 years into it. It's really powerful and engaging when you explain it like this. And especially if C-level uh, executives would join uh, one of those, those development efforts saying, hey, um, we, we got to move here. We're going to kill the product that we've been working on for so long. And you also mentioned um, this uh, has less to do with the emotional part. Now for people being on the work floor, um, I've never seen the people making these kind of decisions coming up to them and say, hey, nice that you're working on this, but we're gonna do something completely different. Well, 
in the way that you're telling it like this, I can easily see people moving along and understanding that decision. What's your take on that? So this is this is and you know this is where I get to I get to sing the popular chorus of outcomes over outputs, right? And this is one of the biggest benefits of that is that when you need to shift an organization away from the thing that they've been doing to a thing that they need to be doing now, managing the outcomes makes that easier, right? So if I say, look, let's assume we work at a at Adobe, right? And I'm like, hey, we got to make Photoshop version 47. And you're like, okay, right? Let's let's do it. Or take, you know, let's, let's make Photoshop version 47 or whatever it is. Um, and we start working on it, right? And then I say, oh, okay, I want you to stop working on Photoshop version 47 and now make web-based uh, creative cloud, right? And you're like, yeah. what do you mean? I thought we were doing 47, right? If instead you said, look, what I, need you, what I need you to work on is we really need to, uh, to drive up our new user acquisition numbers and our retention numbers. We deeply need to understand how we bring new users on board, especially in a world of mobile-first technology and free products like Pixelmator and, and Sketch and all these other tools, Figma, et cetera. Um, and, uh, and we have to retain people as well. So we have to keep them around from, from, from version to version and get them to use more of our stuff, right? That's a fundamentally different challenge, right? That a responsible product team would then say, okay, let's go understand why this is happening. And then let's understand if our current direction of building boxed software, version 47 of Photoshop is going to do that before we build it. Because if it's not, we need to shift our tactics, Right. And so it becomes much more easier to explain to yourself, to your team, to your bosses, to whoever, to the street. Right. Why you're making a, a fundamental product shift when your measure of success is an outcome. Right. If you say to the street, we're building Photoshop 47, they expect Photoshop 47. If you say to, to the street, to the people, to the teams, you're saying we're going to drive up acquisition and retention numbers. OK, that's a different story. How are you going to do that? Well, we think Photoshop 47 is going to do it. But if not, we'll figure something else out. And so that agility, the ability to change course based on evidence is empowered by the fact that your measure of success is not delivering the software, it's changing customer behavior. That makes it significantly easier. And indeed, that really re requires you to understand the behavior and the usage um, that your customer displays. Now, was in the previous episode, we had Chris Stone, who mentioned a metric that he uses like um, days since last um, stakeholder discussion mm. or the, what are metrics and these kind of things that you recommend to start off with? It's interesting. Um, if you would ask me this question six, seven, eight years ago, I would have, I would have stayed away from things like what, days since last customer conversation or stakeholder conversation, number of experiments run, number of customers talked to, um, number of prototypes tested, things like that. I would have completely said, no, those are vanity metrics. And in essence, they are, right? In essence, they actually aren't, they aren't, they aren't metrics of, of they're, no, they're not proof of anything other than you talked to a customer. It doesn't mean you learned anything. It doesn't mean you did anything with that information. And so to me, initially, six, seven, eight years ago, I would have said to you, those are vanity metrics. Don't use those. But I've changed my mind. I've grown as a person. And, uh, and, and the reason for that is because organizations that don't do this at all, 
they need to practice doing this. And by this, I mean, they need to practice customer discovery. They need to practice research, prototyping, A-B testing, uh, MVPs, right? Writing hypotheses. And so if you've not, if your, if your organization hasn't done it, or if you're new to it, then the thing that you need to start simply start doing is just going through the motions and that's okay. So I think it's an initial set of outcomes to measure things like how long has it been since we last talked to a customer? How many customers have we talked to this week? How many experiments have we run? How many features have we killed, right? Those types of things, measure that. Because essentially what you're doing is you're getting people to go through the motions. And that's okay at first. By going through the motions, they're practicing. They're getting used to doing it. They're seeing the value. They're getting better at it. As you get good at doing discovery work, you can then change your metrics to be metrics of actual impact of that discovery work. So for example, the number of decisions that you make based on evidence, um, the number, uh, you know, uh, how the percentage of features in your backlog that have a key result attached to them. Uh, th think things like that, right? Um, uh, prioritization decisions made based on customer feedback, right? Th those are better metrics but they're more mature metrics. Start with the really just the stuff that measures the activity and that's fine. How do you want to keep the, the connection with the guys making the decision? There are a couple of layers in between. How can we still maintain that connection? Radical transparency. I think the onus is on the teams doing the research to regularly and continuously share that their findings broadly with everybody up and out right so across the organization even if no one's asking you for it right every friday right research report comes out and research report is an email with three to five bullet points and maybe a screenshot or a short video clip right no, nothing more than that um, but every every week you're shipping this stuff out even if people didn't ask for it this is what we learned this week this is what we learned last week. This is what we're doing with the information that we learned. If you have any questions, just let us know, right? And so if you don't have regular contact with your stakeholders, this is a great way to keep them in the loop, even if they didn't, didn't ask for it, because it's proof of the work that you're doing. It's proof of the value of the work that you're doing. And, and you're signaling what you're going to do with that information, right? With this information, we have made the following decisions. If you have any concerns, let us know. Right? Even if no one responds to that email? Yeah, exactly. Well, you told them, right? So, you know, if they come back and be like, hey, team, why did you do that? Oh, well, here's four emails that justify that work. All the research and the video clips. Happy to walk you through it. I like that. But proactive communication initially is a really good step. It works. It works. I've done it in all of my jobs and uh, when I worked in-house. And it, it works. People, if you keep, if you look, if you keep it short, you keep it to the point and you keep it interesting, people will read it. I like that. That's powerful. Jeff, tell me what the word value means to you. <laughs> I think it's the most ambiguous word in product development. Um, to, uh, to me, value depends on the context, right? So uh, I, I think if you're, if you're developing a product, then the value um, that you generate for the customer is measured in how their behavior changes, right? So 
Am I working more efficiently? Am I working more successfully? Am I having better results? Am I entertained more? Am I having more fun? Right to me, you're delivering value to me if you can positively impact my behavior or my state of mind or whatever it is. I think value for the organization is the way that you capture that value back, so that customer value, right? So if you think of a product, and it's the simplest definition I, I've, I've read of a product is product is the way an organization delivers and captures value, right? So if we think about the, the first half of that loop is delivering value, it's, it's it positively impacting my behavior, my state of mind. Value for the company is how you capture that back. So is it a subscription? Is it me? telling my friends that I use this product, it, you know, wh whatever it is that you need me to do, uh, is it me using your product, your digital product, and then going into your store and buying a thing from you? To me, those are the, uh, th that's, that's product's business value, right? So I think there's customer value, positively impacting my behavior, and then figuring out how to capture that back in the organization in a way that benefits the organization, that is, um, that's business value. I like the differentiation. That was the last question. Where can people find you? Ah, I'm easy to find. That's by design. So if you go to jeffgodhealth.com, uh, everything is there. Um, I'm also very active on LinkedIn, still on Twitter these days at jboogie, but very, very active on LinkedIn uh, as well these days. Feel free to follow and connect there. I'm more than happy to, to meet you over there and share. I do a lot of sharing there on, on a regular weekly basis. So definitely come over there. And then, of course, my blog, jeffgodhealth.com. Lots of stuff there as well. Awesome. Thank you very much. I learned a ton. I hope you guys did too. Thanks for being here. My pleasure, Sandra. Thanks so much for having me. This was great. I would like to thank our guest and you, the listener, for joining us again in this episode of Mastering Agility. This podcast is part of a series, so make sure to follow us on all the platforms that we provide. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Google Podcasts, you name it. Make sure to go to the website of agilitymasters.com to subscribe to the newsletter in order to stay up to date on the latest information. Check out the show notes and how you can engage with our guests and myself to provide feedback, ask questions, um, more general inquiries, whatever. I would love to hear from you. Next week, we have another amazing episode lined up, so make sure to tune in again. Until then... 